0: Hello, and welcome to Brain Stories. I'm Steve Fleming, and I'm here with my co-host, Caswell Barry. On Brain Stories, we aim to provide a behind-the-scenes
1: profile of the latest and greatest work in neuroscience, highlighting the stories and the scientists
0: who are making this field tick. We don't just ask about the science. We ask how the scientists got to where they are today, and where they think their field is going in the future.
1: So today, we are lucky to be joined by Aman Saleem. Welcome, Aman. So Aman is currently based at the Institute of Behavioral Neuroscience, uh, which is at UCL, Uh, but he has a a long and illustrious career. I've just been updating myself on what he's been doing. It's quite exciting and diverse. So he did his undergrad at the Indian Institute of Technology, Bombay, uh, which was material science and metallurgical engineering before moving to Imperial College in London to do bioengineering. Then he did a postdoc at UCL with Matteo Carandini and Kenneth Harris, before setting up his own lab at uh, the IBN, and your lab uses a combination of experimental and computational approaches to investigate brain function I know that you work on a combination of brain regions as well so at least visual cortex hippocampus entorhinal uh, so perceptual to spatial representations in rodents and maybe beyond that uh, so welcome Emma. thank you very much um, so We've got loads to get through today, I can see. And I'm going to start by asking you why these brain regions? This is, you've cast your net pretty wide. Like most people are happy with just visual cortex or just hippocampus, <laughs> but you're greedy for both. What's the what's the scientific thinking behind this?
2: Well, in general, I think, uh, well, first of all, thank you very much for the invitation. I'm excited to be talking about my work and uh, how I got here. Uh, so why these two regions? And so I think in general, uh, People have studied how single areas work and we've spent a lot of time looking at individual brain areas. So I think it's time we start looking at how things work together rather than as individuals. I think that just goes beyond even brain areas, but uh, in general, I think it's something, it's it's the new direction that I think the field needs to move into. And uh, started off working in some of these, two of these areas because They're two areas that are quite well studied. So we've got a nice base to start off with and explore how multiple areas work together. So that's my motivation to study these two brain areas. So vision and navigation in general.
1: And and is this something that is only recently becoming possible? I mean, I'm, I'm guessing possibly incorrectly that until recently, the limit was maybe our sort of technological competence. And, you know, you had one set of electrodes and they were going to one place. Is is that what's changed or is it just ambition or theory? What do you think's made
2: this possible now? I think over the last decade, uh, there's definitely been a lot more. There's been an explosion of different techniques in neuroscience. One of them being rodent virtual reality, which is probably one of the deciding factors, at least for me, uh, to get into this area because when we're studying vision, we really want to know what the eyes are looking at. So we can like very carefully and quantitatively measure various things as to how things are changing in the brain with respect to the image that's being presented on the screen or in the display device. While when it goes to navigation, we really want to know, we want to have the animal move around, explore, uh, find new places. And for that, we kind of need the animal to to walk around, and it needs a freely moving condition. So virtual reality kind of enabled us to bring these two fields together, so where we could have... So rodent virtual reality is a system where you can have an animal uh, over a wheel in a head-restrained condition, and by running on a wheel or a ball, the animal can explore a virtual reality. So this brings the two things together where the animal we can create a virtual environment and also new computers allow us to do better and faster virtual environments, uh, by, by bringing the, by putting the animal in this head restraint condition, we can present very controlled visual stimuli while the animal is exploring environments. So that's the main thing that brought me into the field. And I think it is also bringing in other people into this field of being able to study uh, vision and the navigation system together.
0: And, and do, the, do the rodents get it straight away when you put them into VR? Because I know, you know humans might find VR slightly disorienting when you first put it on. And I'm just wondering, do they have to be trained to recognize that this is a new environment for them or do they just find it quite natural?
2: I wish I could ask them, Uh, but we can't. Uh, So I think in general, when you put them in the environment, the first thing that at least what I notice is that they seem to like the feedback of an action that they do causing something change in the world. So as they walk and run, the the, the environment is moving across their eyes. And we actually tried this out, we quantified it and looked at like, do animals with feedback and without feedback, how they behave. And they just tend to run faster and more when there is this feedback. Whether they like the, whether they understand the environment is something that's, it's hard to actually quantify because, um, well, we can't ask the mouse, but what we can measure is we can measure whether there is a representation of the environment in the brain. And we do start seeing the representation develop over the first day itself, and then it builds up over the first two or three days. And actually in five days or so, it's pretty stable.
0: Mm -hmm. And so just to give, I guess, our listeners a sense of what kinds of environments you're talking about here. So are these mazes, are they rooms, What kind of things do you code up to present them in VR?
2: So when I started off, I made these like really nice rooms, which the animals could explore (laughs) two dimensional rooms with lots of features on the walls. And then we went in and recorded from the brain and it was just too messy to analyze from the visual cortex. Cause as I mentioned before, for vision, you want to have very controlled visual stimuli, so then we dialed back our ambitions a little bit and now Most of our recordings have been in linear and linear tracks. So they're kind of like a corridor or a tunnel. If you want to try and think of it in mouse terms, a tunnel that they go through that has various visual features along the way. So it's quite simple in general, and that's just to make it easy for ourselves. So we can understand a bit more. And then the idea now is to try and make the environments a lot more complicated.
1: How important, I mean, I guess the thing people have said to me in the past is, oh, you know, mice, they can't really see very well. They're basically blind. And I'm guessing people have said this to you a lot, given the things you work on. How do you answer them? I mean, I suppose there's a set of questions here: Is How do you answer that question? Uh, and also, do you think there's scope in the future to add other things to the VR? Like, I mean, something tactile. Whiskers are obviously
2: super important to rodents. So... When I first started working in mouse vision I very often had an existential crisis as to why the hell am I doing mouse vision? They don't use vision for anything, what's the point? They're nocturnal. So the reason I moved into this field as well is one observation which is that place cells in the hippocampus and generally the spatial representation of the environment is really strongly controlled by visual cues. So there's a lot of observations in the literature uh, over decades of research where if you have very prominent landmarks around in the room, uh, so just features on the wall uh, far away or close to the animal, and if you rotate these landmarks uh, in a symmetric way, so if you've kind of got a circular environment and you rotate things, the whole spatial representation, just the visual landmarks, the whole spatial representation of the, um, of the animal actually rotates with the visual landmarks. So that at least gives us a hint that the spatial representation is quite strongly controlled by these visual cues. So whether or not they're using vision directly for every precise thing, I'm not sure, but at least this one gave us a hint that there's definitely some very strong control of the navigation system using visual landmarks. Another thing is, and this was, uh, you know, do they actually use them in behavior? And for this, we actually ran a few, there's there's been multiple labs now, and also I was involved in some studies where we looked at, can we elicit some innate responses from a mouse based on visual stimuli? And we can very, very reliably induce some, elicit some very strong responses. So, uh, two examples uh, are if you present a dot that's rapidly expanding, which is something that's made, something that's comparable to like a, a bird that's approaching the animal, for example, um, that causes the mice to flee or it causes a flight response and the animals run away to their nest straight away. and. But then if you present a slightly different stimulus, which is you have a small dot that's moving slowly across the field, up across the visual field in the o- overhead of the animal. And this is something which we, we consider mimicking a bird that's just flying across, but not really approaching the animal. When we present a stimulus like that, the mice tend to freeze. So there's a very different behavior depending on what visual stimulus you present. Again, suggesting that, you know, mice can use their vision to do various behaviors. So in general, there are various, and now uh, over time we've shown lots of different behaviors as as a field, a lot of different visual behaviors have been established in mice. So they do use vision quite effectively uh, for various behaviors. They might not be just purely visual, there's other sensory systems as well that they use quite a lot, especially olfaction seems to be a very strong driver for a lot of behaviours. Um, so so yeah, they definitely use their visual system. Uh, it's unclear as to how strong, how, how dominant it is as a sensory system compared to the other sensory uh, systems. Uh, your other question was about whether we can now introduce other features, and that's something that a lot of labs have started doing. So not just using vision, but then adding in some sensory uh, some somatosensory features or adding in some auditory tones every now and then just to simulate some kind of movement of a uh, of an auditory object uh, so there is there's other things we can now add on i think it's all a question of like once you've got a decent idea about how one sensory system works in a navigation framework we can start adding more
0: yeah you're already, you're already in two brain areas you don't, you don't necessarily want to go to three straight away. Um, yeah. so, so you have this um, lovely system for controlling the visual input and the environment for the mouse. And you also have this ability to then record uh, cells in both the visual cortex and the hippocampus. So I'm wondering if you could tell us um, what your questions are that you're currently trying to address using that setup.
2: So when I start around the time when I started the lab, uh, at slightly before that, my main interest was to try and understand how we go from visual images that we see on the eye to a map of the environment or a cognitive map. So how we go, the transformation of, this was the title of my grant actually, the transformation of visual images through cognitive maps. and. The idea and was, when,
0: and just sorry, so just when you use that phrase "map of the environment," maybe you can just give a line or two on what that means from the point of view of the brain.
2: Yeah, so this is related to place uh, cells in the hippocampus that were discovered by John O'Keefe, uh, a Nobel uh, for which he won the Nobel Prize, and uh, John O'Keefe from UCL, and uh, they came up with this theory that by having a a group of place cells representing the entire environment you can actually get a map of the external world in the hippocampus or hippocampal formation and that's what they refer to as the cognitive map so the idea was how do you go from the sensory visual images to a, a cognitive map and the way i designed these the experiments originally was to, or at least the hypothesis to begin with was really simple you start off with a very Purely visual representation in visual areas of the brain, and as you move downstream into the hippocampal areas or the cognitive areas, you get a more spatial representation. So that's how we started off. Uh, I think the first thing that we came across was like, okay, the animals are now running, and all of vision was done in stationary animals. So the first challenge, and actually it was quite productive because got a whole bunch of papers based on that uh, understanding how vision works while an animal is moving and it turned out it wasn't exactly the same it wasn't like you've just got um, the same activity as you had when the animal was stationary which was what the original prediction would have been that we just you know it's just a camera it just works it just captures images in the at least in the primary visual cortex so first of all we started finding things just with locomotion and we had to characterize that and is that is
0: that just is that related to motion sensitive circuits in the visual cortex or is is there because i could imagine just naively when i'm thinking about what the image looks like when you're running it's moving quickly so i'm just wondering how that that intersects with more classical work on things moving in our visual
2: field so so when we started off we actually started off in virtual environments and so we did have this thing where they could be either just moving visually or the mm. animal running so the first uh, the control experiment we ran was just run the had the animals run in the dark were like at absolute darkness and we found that even in darkness you get very strong modulation of visual cortical neurons based on the speed at which the animal ran so we could get uh, quite strong responses, even in the absence of any visual inputs. And these were kind of, these kind of get integrated when you get into visual, co- uh, when you combine them with the visual speed signals. So it wasn't just about the visual, the optic flow, uh, kind of stimuli that are generated when you move through an environment. It's actually the running speed. The act of running itself was modulating activity. So once we kind of got a slightly better idea about what running did, we then could move into, okay, what's happening in the environment. And we were recording from visual cortex and hippocampus and kind of to our surprise, what we found was that we were actually able to de, so the design of the stimulus was that we had two parts of an environment, which had identical images in the two parts and The intention was that visual cortex should look at these as two identical images, they're just mirrored. And so you should have identical responses to these two parts. While hippocampus should have a purely visual represent, uh, sorry, spatial representation. So it should be able to identify exactly where the animal is. While if you look at visual cortex, you should be confused as to like, am I in part A or part B, because they look the same. If you just took an image And presented it it would look exactly the same. But to our surprise we started seeing that actually when you look at visual cortex you can tell where the animal was even if the images were identical. So visual cortex was surprisingly representing information beyond just a purely visual representation it actually had uh, quite a strong spatial modulation of responses as well. So
1: did that uh, surprise you? i mean i I guess I'm not so up to date on what the state of the art thinking in visual cortex was five years ago, but like I guess most we did know there were top down some top down control, but maybe not that sort of detailed
2: like is it it sounds quite surprising to me It was quite surprising we uh, we kind of didn't believe it for a long time and had to run a whole bunch of controls just to make sure that you know, it's not just something like the animal was running faster in one part versus the other, or something was brighter in one part versus the other. We, so we were quite surprised and didn't believe it at first because it was just, as you said, we did know that there was there's some top-down influence on V1, but we didn't expect such a strong influence, and especially of such a uh, a cognitive map rather than just something simpler like history of stim, something immediate history of the stimulus or we know a lot about surround suppression which is that if you present a stimulus in the center of the receptive field where the neuron is looking and present things on the outside you get like a suppression of activity or excitation but you get effects of what's happening on the outside of where the neuron is looking and that's been known to be kind of top-down influence. So a lot of these things were not really explored at the level of this, these higher order functions like cognition in general.
1: And, and how, just sort of give people a sense of the the effect, are we talking, like what sort of strength modulation are we talking, are we sort of in the realm of fMRI where you could detect really small, I shouldn't say there's almost a Steve looking at me, being like, <laughs> so that's a strength, that's not a weakness, definitely, um, you know, but where you could, detect a sort of small percentage change because you're averaging across 10,000 neurons per voxel? Or were you seeing something like, you know, I don't a 30% change in firing rates of individual neurons? Is it sort of like, what's the sort so, of effect we're dealing with?
2: So the way we characterised it was we looked at, because we've got two parts of the room and usually neurons kind of get activated by one of the features in one of the parts of the room, we kind of looked at it as the the difference between the two peaks that we could get in the two parts of the room. So in some neurons, actually, we just got one peak. There wasn't a second peak at all, which means that it's a really strong effect in those neurons. And then you went from that range to having like equal peaks, which is like what the uh, the null hypothesis expectation was. So we had a whole range of things. And I think in general, the. The median or the mode of the distribution is probably around half the effect so at least one of the peaks would be half the height of the other something something around there
1: i mean it's massive yeah. it's
0: it, huge huge yeah. result
2: yeah yeah it was it was just, quite
0: kind of surprising yeah i'm just wondering i may this is a bit of an ill-formed question but I, i'm trying to think about this in psychological terms so if if i'm walking around an environment and i've got two stimuli or two bits of the room that are identical but i in a sense develop an expectation that i'm going to see that thing over there and i'm also going to see it over there and i guess it makes sense that those those expectations are need to be distinguished maybe for memory or for what i'm going to do with that stimulus another way so i'm just wondering I guess my question is do you think that top-down modulation is purely spatial or do you think it's like about the expectation of that stimulus in that
2: context that's a great question i wish i had an answer i i think so i can just say what i think it is i i would agree with you i think it's it i i would feel it's about the expectation of the context in which something is presented so um more than just a multi-sensory thing so for example if you were looking at an image with you know and there's a bad smell in the room you would probably have a different response to it uh i guess we don't expect it in primary visual cortex but maybe it's going going across so something like that where you've got an expectation of um of what you're going to see in that room and that might i think it's it I do think it's some kind of expectation kind of affecting the responses in the primary visual cortex yeah
1: and do you know if that's hippocampal in origin if if you didn't have a hippocampus would these effects disappear or is it something that
2: is i mean what do you what do you think what's going on there so, so far what we've done is that uh, we've recorded hippocampus and visual cortex together to see if they're doing the same thing. And they make the same mistakes, which is suggesting that they're representing the same information because they, make this, if they shouldn't be making the same mistakes if, if they do make a mistake. Um, so they're correlated. Now, whether it is coming from the hippocampus or somewhere else, I uh, we're still exploring that. But that's still an open question that we don't have an answer to. So we'll have to do some kind of inactivation experiments uh, to just say that okay, you've got activity now, uh, you've got spatial modulation now, and you've lost it when you've inactivated certain projections coming into the hip or visual cortex. And this is these are ongoing experiments.
0: So we so we'll come back in a few minutes we'll ask you about what you're excited to do next in the future Uh, but before we do that um, what we also like to do on brain stories is find out a bit about how you got into this in the first place so caswell gave some of your bio earlier and it sounded like you came from not from neuroscience uh, more from the engineering side so can you say when you first got an inkling that you might want to go into neuroscience and, and why did that why did that happen?
2: Right. So as Caswell mentioned, I did metallurgical engineering and material science, which is like very far from what we do now. It's a bit of a combination of physics and chemistry and um, honestly quite boring. It was to me, but I was still- <laughs> it Sounds awesome. I've
0: got to say it sounds awesome. Yeah, I imagine- sure we've you... not got any metallurgists <laughs> listening. I, I'm uh... thinking of it as, as
2: modern day alchemy, basically. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it was just the fact that I think we learned in every co- every year we learned a different aspect about how a blast furnace works, okay. which was to me very annoying uh, <laughs> because it was like metallurgical engineering and material science. So I think it was the metallurgical engineering bit that was a bit dated and it, it felt a bit dated because things are pretty well established there. So I think the material science aspect of it was a little bit more interesting, uh, and that's kind of why I went to Imperial, uh, to do a master's in bioengineering with the idea that maybe I want to do pursue a career in biomaterials, which was one of the topics that the master's program covered, but then it had a bunch of other topics alongside biomaterials and that was just, just what is, what is biomaterials? Or what, what would uh, so, be an example of work? Right. Uh... So uh, if you've got stitches uh, that that you're using, if you've got like artificial uh, hip replacement, that'll be a mater- biomaterial. Right, right. Or various materials that go into a, a heart valve a valve or a stent. They're all by examples of biomaterials. And you can go to the extent if you can do targeted drug delivery using materials that would get attracted to the cancer cells and then like you do something there. So there's, this interesting stuff there. Uh, but then when I got to, when I started doing bioengineering, I got exposed to, uh, so one of the topics was just very basic anatomy and physiology. And that was my favorite course. Uh, so I just went up to the lecturer at that point and was like, I really want to do physiology. Uh, who the people doing physiology in the department? Because I I know I need to do a project soon, so I'd like to try and do some physiology. And he, at that point, Imperial was a a smallish department, and there were two new recruits, uh, Simon Schultz, who was a neuroscientist, and Peter Weinberg, who was a cardiovascular physiology person. I wasn't quite into cardiovascular physiology, so I went to Simon and uh, someone gave me a book which I think I have a copy of even now uh, of a different I bought myself a new one uh, which was um, it's called A Vision of the Brain by Samir Zeki mm-hmm. and uh, I another it UCL, another UCL another UCL. Alumnus? yeah, yeah. Uh, and I just loved the book and I loved reading about vision so I was like I want to do a project with you and the other thing that was weird was like I was like i want to do experiments i don't want to do any theory stuff like uh so so yeah that's how i started that's how i delved into neuroscience i actually so, did, did so the...
0: you then came to work with Samezeki at you said, oh, no, well. no no it was uh, simon,
2: uh, i was just with simon schultz i see i see um i just did a master's uh master's project with simon at that point what was your project
1: I, about? I'm I'm inter- This is this, this was the moment and I want to know right. what 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 it was so, that really. So one thing you. I
2: wanted to mention is like I didn't even finish the course on biomaterials. I just said like I'm not doing that anymore. Amazing. I was, Amazing. <laughs> I, was uh, I was sold as soon as I just got exposed to it. Uh, so you asked what was the moment? So that was I think I think actually that book was probably the one. That, it was not just about the book, but also I got exposed to other aspects of neuroscience, but. That was kind of the turning point for me
1: I, I so i love this i just want to go back to that a second so this is really nice here that actually it was this, the key moment basically was was ditching this msc ho- halfway through the bio oh, no, i, the I did the msc you did the okay
2: it was a bioengineering masters which had lots of optional courses i see and i, I just see. ditched the biomaterials option because okay. i was like i'm not going back to material science like i knew that like I might I might not do academia, but I'm not going back to material science. I still like this. It's
1: like burning the boats. You arrive somewhere yeah. new and you burn the boats, there's no going back. Okay, yeah. nice. And um and then did you, you did you stay and do your PhD with, with Simon?
2: Yes, I did actually. Um Yeah, and the project you were asking. So I, w- I was like, I want to do experiments. Simon had just started his lab, didn't have a license to do mouse experiments, but I was like Okay, what can we do? Uh, I know this guy up in Cambridge who does flies. Let's see what we can do, uh, which was Simon Laughlin. And then I went up to Cambridge. There was, there was someone else, Holger Crap, at that point, who was new at Cambridge. And he was like, okay, here's how you do fly experiments. So I went back and tried to set up a fly lab.
0: In Oh, wow. So you were the one Simon's. who went and learnt the techniques and just brought them back and set them up?
2: That was I, I. tried to, but yes. I love the try to I, <laughs> <laughs> But then I went on to do a PhD, and I actually did. I did get two papers with fly work. Wow! Uh, out of that, um, so it was. It was actually a productive. T- it was useful to have done that.
1: That's pretty demanding, though. I mean, being the first PhD, one of the first PhD students into a lab, and setting up a new technique is far from trivial. Um,
2: okay. Uh, yes. And it was, I loved it though. Uh, it was something that I really enjoyed. Do do you think I'm wondering whether that, because
0: I've, I guess, come from in human imaging research, we share facilities. There's a lot of kind of core staff. We don't usually have to build things ourselves so much, but I'm wondering whether that experience might've given you the confidence to then i guess do what you do now in your lab which is seems like setting up a lot of new things building things from
2: scratch yeah i think the so there was it wasn't so there was it wasn't just to make things harder uh, simon's <laughs> did, did you record from multiple places in the fly brains as well <laughs> no simon's lab was next to the aerospace engineering wind tunnel which was terrible in terms of doing electrophysiology so after having denoised the setup and a fly brain is really like it picks up any kind of noise that's around so after denoising a rig where i was able to get some recordings from a fly brain next to a wind tunnel i know i can get recordings from wherever like <laughs> put me wherever i get some recordings i'm 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 fine. So it de- definitely gave me that kind of confidence that I can do that. And so half of my PhD was in flies and then I transitioned to mice and also kind of Simon and I built the, the mouse stuff. So I was again, one of the few PhD students around. So yeah, I just like definitely got a lot of confidence in terms of building new things, trying new techniques just going with it so just yeah my advisor's style was like throwing you in the deep end and like you know some people hate it but i actually thrived on it i really liked it uh definitely helped me a lot moving on to my postdoc where i think that's what mateo found interesting that i set up these things so i can now go and set up virtual mass virtual reality uh which i which I managed to, uh, do. And even now we keep developing new things. And so I definitely have the confidence that I can figure it out. Eventually it might take a while, but we'll get there.
1: This is, it's, it's really interesting. I'm sort of really conscious of the fact that, um, quite a lot of people who listen to this podcast sort of maybe had to make decisions about PhDs themselves. One thing that strikes me is there's really no typical routes and, and yours is, and I thought we'd heard most of yours is, I guess, yes, again, different in that this you've changed so many times across so many different places, so many different fields, different groups, different techniques. It's incredible. It's, and it, and, and actually the really interesting thing is that you, you see that strongly as sound, well, it sounds like you see that as a a positive advantage rather than something where you're like, oh, there's been some, you know, there's some time less switching, but actually it's it's furnished you with a set of skills that are now paying dividends. so, I mean, that's not a question, that's just a statement. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I guess, uh, and also while I was doing my PhD, because Simon, Simon's lab was kind of half theory and half experiments, I was sitting next to someone who did astrophysics and was doing entropy in stars before he came into neuroscience and started doing entropy in neural systems. And so I, that was another very valuable exposure that I had where, you know, thinking about the theory as well as the experiment was, was, was quite useful. Even if I didn't, well, I didn't always do as much theory uh, during my PhD, but, you know, again, it's a question of confidence. I can talk to people about that, and that helps with collaborations and just just being able to, like, at least understand some of the things that are, that are happening out there, even if I don't do them myself necessarily.
1: I was going to say, what, uh, looking at looking at the timeline, it seems that you you switch every few years. Is the, is the next big one coming? Is this like we're waiting for the next big earthquake? Uh, do you think you will? I guess really, rather being facetious, <laughs> what I should say is, uh, do you think you'll switch again, or do you think you found a home now? Uh, both academically,
2: technique wise. So technique wise, I don't think we should limit ourselves to like what we know. I think like depending on what the question is, I might a new technique it's not something that i don't think any one of us should be doing that because it's it clouds our the directions we can take and the questions we can ask so i'd rather drive the techniques based on the questions that we have but uh, i think, I think that's, that's
0: inspiring to hear right so i think that because i think people would maybe like to do that but they don't feel they have the confidence to go through with it. And so I, I think that is an inspiring message that we should be getting out of our comfort zone, um, and trying new things. Definitely. And I'm, and
2: I'm also like, I myself don't always follow that. Like I do take advantage of the techniques that I know to do big, collect more data using that rather than like doing something slightly different. But ideally I would like to not restrict myself based on that. It's, it's also like, When it comes to experimental work, it's like when something's running, don't change it kind of attitude. So, you know, there's stuff running in the lab. We definitely want to take the most advantage of Mm -hmm. what's working and then extend it from there. But yeah, ideally, we shouldn't be like, at least that's what I tell uh, the students, like at least at the planning phase, let's not restrict ourselves. And then we can go back and like cut our ambitions a little bit later but it it shouldn't really cloud our judgment as to like what we can do.
0: So, so this brings us nicely on to the question then of what you want to do in the next five years, 10 years, where do you see this research program
2: going? So I've been asking myself this a lot because, uh, it's about five years in, uh, since I first started the lab and we've kind we've got a bunch of papers out, a lot of studies have now come to closure and we're about to start a whole new set of experiments. So I'm even more confident that looking at multiple brain regions is the way forward. And that's something that now I'm trying to do. Pretty much every project in the lab will be recording from multiple brain regions, two or maybe more and different combinations potentially, not just restricting to V1 and hippocampus, but a few other regions. So multiple brain regions. And the other thing I'm really keen on is the dynamics of neural activity. So a lot of the studies that we've been doing are looking at spiking activity or neural activity in time windows of like about a second or two seconds, something like that, like you present a stimulus, look at what the response is like in the second that follows while the stimulus is on. And then you look at it afterwards, I think. It's, it's also the question of like now we have a lot more data and we're, we've got better precision. I'm very keen now on understanding how does this activity evolve across time in the order of tens of milliseconds because there seems to be some, a lot of interesting things happening at that kind of time timescale. Uh, we've been observing things between like stationary and running animals that when the animals are running things get faster. The, the, the encoding of information is more precise and things like that. So, uh, I'd say the two, two main directions that the lab would be going in actually three main directions. So the first one is multiple areas, looking at dynamics. And the third one is making things more complicated for ourselves by trying to do freely moving animals, trying to do vision and freely moving animals in parallel with the navigation so we've now developed some new software tools that are able to generate kind of augmented reality environments of very complex environments to mice and humans as well um, so ex- try and exploit that and actually do some more interesting experiments in the visual system
0: and these when you say augmented reality this is in like a real box or room, but you're projecting things on, on the
2: walls. Yeah. It's kind of like you have a window and you've got objects beyond the window that are changing so that you can interact with. So the scene, like if you look out of a window and move your head around things outside, move on the window relative to based on your head movement. And so we're able to replicate that by tracking the animal in real time and updating what's happening on the display device. And so we're able to generate these more realistic environments where you can have three-dimensional objects that update their. You're changing the viewpoint of an object based on where the animal is.
0: Super cool. All right, well, we are almost out of time, so we're gonna need to wrap up. But before we do, um, as regular listeners will know, we like to ask each of our guests the same final question. Um, so Eman, what is your favorite fact about the brain?
2: I'd say it's a weird fact, not a favorite <laughs> They're really tasty oh my
0: god oh my gosh. <laughs> you have to name the species
2: <laughs> so uh I know this might not be the best thing to talk about but in in Bombay where I did my uh my undergrad uh there's it's a popular street food dish. Uh, it's called beja fry, which is fried brain. Uh, what, uh, what's, what sort of brain? Uh, it's lamb and sheep. Wow. wow. There you go. Interesting. Um, not sure it's for everyone's palate, the, <laughs> the, the fact, but it's a, yeah. I think that's it's the something. best fact we've had. So I've got to I say
1: it, hands it down. Is. It's not even. Yeah, this yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> absolutely.
1: So on, on the next episode, are we uh, getting for some fried brains and eating them live? Is that what we're going to do?
0: <laughs> Screenshot coming. You to can you. actually.
2: You can actually. Um, so the shum is Bombay street food, and one of their dishes you can have the option of having brains. Wow,
0: there you go. Wow.
1: Okay, I'm um, I'm game if you are. <laughs> um, That was fantastic, Aman. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Brain Stories Um, across the board. That was just really super interesting and inspiring. So thank you for joining us. Uh, To the audience, see you
0: next time. We'd like to thank Matt Wakelin, Maya Sapir and Trevor Smart for their roles in taking Brain Stories from an idea to a fully fledged podcast. We'd also like to thank Patrick Robinson and UCL Digital Education for editing and mixing. Follow us on Twitter at UCL Brain Stories for updates and information about forthcoming episodes.